Coming to you from the Outer Mission, this is Monkey Block, a storytelling podcast focused on San Francisco's golden past, 1849 through 1906. I'm your host, Girlina. The stories are closely based on newspapers of the time, historical books, and journals. Disclaimer, I do my best to research and share the real stories, extracting legends or calling them out. Now, let's go back in time. Today's episode is a little different. It's partially based on serendipity, in addition to my normal detective work. I wanted to walk around the original perimeter of Yerba Buena to feel how big the Pueblo was and to see where historic structures once stood in relation to the original shoreline. At the end of my walk, I was standing at the Transamerica building, and something drew me to a cocktail lounge at 582 Washington Street at Hotelling Place called High Horse. In the name of research, I ordered a Pisco Punch, and purely for research. I mentioned to the bartender I had a San Francisco history podcast. The serendipity that day was in this bar, in the basement which the bartender told me had San Francisco history. In front of me, I'm looking at a portion of the seawall that once protected a small part of Yerba Buena Cove, whether that was as Yerba Buena or San Francisco. We don't know the seawall's original build date. But this seawall has a presence. It looked old, and it has layers of different material, both vertically and horizontally, which were added over time. The seawall runs along Hotelling Place, this really small and very cute alley, and around the corner as well on Washington Street. To me, it's amazing to think that where I was standing was where the shallow waves would roll in, where they met with the seashore near Montgomery Street. I'll describe the seawall in better detail in a future episode once I've had a chance to study it. But this seawall has a touch point to today's episode, which is about the shoreline of Yerba Buena and maybe also to the hide and tallow trade. And how is that? Well, keep listening. As with all my episodes, I'll cite my sources today It's from Yerba Buena Biographies, from the California Historical Society Quarterly, 1935, and Douglas S. Watson's An Hour's Walk Through Yerba Buena, which later became San Francisco, also from the California Historical Society, 1938, and John Young's San Francisco, A History of the Pacific Coast Metropolis, 1912. Here we go. So what was the California hide and tallow trading period? And how did that start? That was during the California mission days and into the rancho days, where cattle roamed everywhere in the San Francisco district. Everywhere. And in large numbers. You didn't do much to raise the cattle. They, they multiplied on their own. 
The labor involved was the farming to feed and butcher the cows for their meat, and then to process the cows for their hide and tallow, which was for their own use, but also for trading. When the mission system ended, the California rancheros continued with the same lucrative business model. The cows provided easy profit for their valuable hides and tallow. And that's because cows weren't available everywhere. So the California hides and tallow were readily sought after elsewhere in the world. But there's one problem. During the mission days, Spain did not allow trading with foreign ships. To avoid a paper trail, the missions and rancheros found a way around that. They traded goods with incoming ships rather than using currency. The incoming ships brought furniture, clothing, furs, china, silverware, alcohol, jewelry, etc. And the Californios traded in cowhides, which were also known as California banknotes. And they also traded tallow for the imported goods. The incoming ships would leave with the traded hides and tallow, and they would sell them elsewhere in the world. Mission Dolores, or also called Mission San Francisco de Assis, and the rest of the San Francisco district were illegally trading with ships out of the still unnamed Yerba Buena Cove as early as 1817. The Russians made annual trading visits to the Bay of San Francisco, which is how it appeared on maps at that time. Also ships from England, France, Boston, and the Sandwich Islands, now known as Hawaii, traded from this still unnamed cove because it was better protected than the Presidio port and also because this location was not on the radar. 1822 became the year New Spain, as it was previously called, became Mexico, which meant Mexico could change Spain's previous restrictions regarding trading with foreign ships. And we now have the legal start of California's hide and tallow trade period. Now, to give historical perspective, in 1822, Mexico wins independence from Spain, but the California missions aren't secularized until 1832, and the settlement of Yerba Buena wasn't until 1835. While Mexico made trading with foreign ships legal, illegal trading continued in the Bay of San Francisco. And even General Mariano Vallejo was a part of this untaxed trading. Illegal trading continued because now, in 1822, the law required your ship to first stop in Monterey to pay a trading fee before trading either there in Monterey or to go south to San Diego or north to San Francisco. But ships would circumvent the Monterey stop and go straight to the San Francisco Bay. Said another way, after Mexico won independence from Spain, not much changed in the hide and tallow trading in San Francisco. We're still in 1822. William A. Richardson arrives on the British ship Orion at Presidio Beach to trade supplies at the Presidio. I have to assume they first stopped in Monterey to pay their trading fees if they didn't 
choose to arrive in the unnamed cove. Richardson, who spoke some Spanish, went to the shore to act as a translator and to conduct the trading with the Presidio. After conducting business, commander of the San Francisco Presidio, Ignacio Martinez, invited Richardson back to the Presidio for a fiesta later that night. The Californios fiestas were legendary. They would go on for three days and included rodeos, bands, and grand dinners. And I doubt this fiesta was any different. The brandy, the music, the dancing, and his interest in the host's lovely daughter kept Richardson entertained until the sun came up. After an all-nighter, Richardson must have been in rough shape when he returned to the ship in the morning. The conversation with the captain didn't go well as he explained why he was getting back to the ship at this hour. He either jumped ship or was dismissed because later that same day, Richardson returned to the Presidio and asked Martinez if he could stay in California or at least until the next British ship came to port. Long story short, Richardson ends up becoming a Roman Catholic, which is necessary to become a naturalized Mexican citizen, which is necessary to marry the host's lovely daughter, Maria Antonia Martinez. Richardson goes on to be an important player in Yerba Buena's history. It was Richardson who had the idea to develop the still unnamed cove. Twice he approached Governor Figueroa about creating a pueblo at the unnamed cove, and twice Figueroa denied him. Figueroa eventually changes his mind because on December 14, 1834, Francisco de Jaro was elected as the first alcalde of the still uninhabited Pueblo de Yerba Buena, which he's not to be confused with Washington Bartlett, who 12 years later became the first American alcalde of Yerba Buena. So an alcalde was appointed to sand dunes, sagebrush, and wild mint, a.k.a. Yerba Buena, while the few local residents lived near the deteriorating Mission San Francisco, the Assis Mission Dolores, with even fewer families still living at the Presidio, as well as the handful of local rancho families. It's 1835. As part of laying out the new town with a port, Governor Figueroa declared no land grants would be made within 200 varas, that's about 555 feet, from the cove's beach. And that was to avoid that part of the coast from falling into private hands. Much to the locals' unhappiness, the beach would be kept exclusively for government use, throwing cold water on the hopes to develop this area to cater to the existing and growing trade business. Which explains why Richardson's plans were originally denied. This also explains why the first homes and businesses were located away from Yerba Buena's government-reserved water's edge. But Figueroa died September 1835 before the land could be surveyed for the Pueblo planning. With Figueroa's death, 
the San Francisco district and the recently named Yerba Buena was now open to different possibilities. Recall fiesta-loving Richardson? With the new governor, Jose Castro, Richardson was given the opportunity to formally create the plans for the new town. Richardson named the first street in Yerba Buena Calle de la Fundación, the founding street, which was called DuPont Street for a while and is now known as Grant Avenue. Under the command of General Mariano Vallejo, Richardson becomes Captain Richardson, the first harbor master of Yerba Buena Cove at the port of San Francisco. He pitched the first house in Yerba Buena, made of four redwood posts and a sail to create a tent located at, this is hard to pin down, it's either 823 or 827 through 843 Grant Avenue between Clay and Washington Street. What I'm finding is just because a San Francisco plaque states something doesn't mean the plaque is accurate, which is not what I would have expected. Richardson, his wife, and three children lived in that tent for three months before building his adobe Casa Grande on the same spot. Richardson managed two schooners, which was his good idea to improve how food was transported from the better produce-growing San Jose and Santa Clara missions to the more food-deprived Mission San Francisco de Assis. The ox and cart land travel between the missions was notoriously slow, and the schooners could more quickly navigate the waters to transport food from the South Bay to the San Francisco Bay. The Schooners, however, found a secondary purpose. That's right. In the hides and tallow trading with the anchored ships in Yerba Buena. The landing for ships in Yerba Buena Cove was specifically at Clark's Point, which is now the corner of Broadway and Battery Streets. And that's because the high tide came right up to this location, whereas the beach was more shallow near the middle of the cove. Richardson prices at the time were 12 cents per hide and $1 for a 500-pound bag of tallow. That's a lot of candles and soap. And 25 cents for two and a half pounds of wheat. In less than five years, the price goes up to 22 cents per hide. In 1836, American Jacob Primer Lease aware of the current and future business potential of the port of San Francisco, arrives to set up the first mercantile store in the newly created Pueblo de Yerba Buena. This port already had an annual export of 20,000 hides and 2 million pounds of tallow. Lease already had a mercantile store in Los Angeles with his two partners, Nathan Spear and William Sturgis Hinckley. Lise is an American, and Yerba Buena is still under Mexican law, so that's bold on his part. He and his business partners want to move their existing business to Yerba Buena to establish a permanent store on land and sell to both the local rancheros and the incoming ships, rather than the current model of incoming ships anchoring offshore and Richardson's two schooners going out to them acting as temporary stores on water. The San Francisco alcalde, Francisco Guerrero, was pleased to hear this news 
except the land he offered lease was at the mouth of Mission Dolores Creek or at the opening of the bay near the Presidio because he did not have the authority to grant the land where lease was requesting. The Mexican government had reserved 200 vadas of the Yerba Buena shore for their own government use and trading purposes. But lease is not being offered land even near Yerba Buena Cove. So a ruffled lease returns to Monterey, where Alta California Governor Chico said he would speak with the San Francisco District Alcalde Guerrero to allow lease to build within the government reserved cove, and the paperwork was to state wherever lease thought was advantageous to his mercantile business. What we're seeing here is a friendly business relationship growing between the Californios and Americans, which at this point is mutually beneficial. There's the softening of Mexican laws to accommodate their new partners, whom they plan to grow and prosper with. General Mariano Vallejo is welcoming of the foreigners and believes the Americans are good for business and all to California. Back in 1826, Captain Frederick Beachy wrote, California must awaken from its lethargy or fall into other hands. It's clear California and Mexico were unaware of the outside interest in Yerba Buena Cove and the surrounding land, which doesn't mean they didn't see the value and possibilities. They didn't actively do anything to develop it, nor were they aware that other countries wanted it. There are documents of the time in Mexico City and San Francisco, which state the potential of the land, but they don't specifically mention the Bay of San Francisco. Which is interesting, because the United States was interested in California specifically for this new port in San Francisco. One month later, July 1st, 1836, Lease returns to Yerba Buena with a letter from Governor Chico and all the boards and material to build his home with an attached mercantile store. He built right next to Captain Richardson's Casa Grande, 200 varas from the Yerba Buena shoreline. Lease builds his shack of a house and mercantile store in three days and coordinates Yerba Buena's first 4th of July celebration. He invited everyone from the countryside, as it was called. The party lasted for three days, with dancing, music, eating, drinking. Interestingly, both the Mexican and United States flags were raised that day. You know, you had to be a Mexican citizen to be granted land. So, the next year, 1837, Lise, just like Richardson, marries his own Californiana. He marries Mariano Vallejo's sister, Rosalia, giving him the rights as a Mexican citizen, and they give birth to the first Anglo child born in Yerba Buena, a girl named Rosalia after her mother. In earlier San Francisco history, Lise has been incorrectly credited as being the first person to build a home in Yerba Buena. San Francisco even had a plaque stating that until 1938, when the California Historical Society petitioned to correct the plaque. He was the first American to build a house, but Englishman Richardson's tent, and then his adobe, in 1835, predates Lisa's home by a year. 
Californios felt the good times would last, and any changes in ownership would include them. After all, they're giving the Americans favorable treatment in the hide-and-tallow trading and sharing the wealth. At this point, I've described the history that led up to Yerba Buena and the foundation for San Francisco. There are other important people and stories to Yerba Buena start, but I felt Richardson and Lise achieved important firsts for Yerba Buena. So let's recap. As early as 1817, illegal trading was occurring in the then-unnamed Yerba Buena Cove as part of the hide and tallow trading. Yerba Buena is established in 1835. Richardson is the first harbor master of the Port of San Francisco and the first to build a home in Yerba Buena. Lise is the first to build a store and the first to father an Anglo child in Yerba Buena. But I feel compelled to say that the Ohlone Indians prior to the missions in 1776 were the first inhabitants of Yerba Buena. Richardson and Lise are the first Anglo inhabitants of Yerba Buena. Recall the seawall at the beginning of the episode at High Horse, located at 582 Washington Street at Hotelling Place? We know sea trading was occurring as early as 1817 off the Bay of San Francisco, and Mariano Vallejo was a part of it both prior to and after the Pueblo de Yerba Buena settlement in 1835. When was that exposed seawall I was looking at created? Was it started before Yerba Buena settlement to make the hide and tallow trading more hospitable to the incoming ships as part of protecting the 200 varas of government reserve shoreline? Was it started in 1835 or after 1846 when Yerba Buena becomes San Francisco? We know the seawall is connected to San Francisco before the landfill, when the shoreline was still located in its original location. Well, at least we know the seawall was created before the landfill of this specific part of the cove. If you buy a drink at High Horse, ask the bartender about the seawall. Or walk down Hotelling Place and imagine the sound of waves crashing against the seawall as you look towards the Embarcadero. Under your feet, you would be standing on a muddy, sandy beach. And if you look towards Battery and Broadway, imagine anchored ships not far from where you're standing. Ships that were there to trade with the local missions and rancheros. To me, this is the romantic beauty of early San Francisco. At this point, it's a well-known secret with few rules and lots of good times. I have more to say about the seawall and its touch point to Yerba Buena and San Francisco history. I'm going down the rabbit hole on this one, dear listeners. I will continue to research this specific corner of San Francisco and keep you posted on my progress. Please bookmark this podcast to be alerted when new episodes are released. Thank you for listening. This is Monkey Block, and I'm your private, early San Francisco history detective, Gerlina, retelling forgotten stories from San Francisco's golden past. <laughs>